It's, uh, it's been a great couple of days to spend together. Let me say, it's been so encouraging. I haven't been able to chat to, uh, uh, to each of you, but it is a uh, great refreshment for us as a couple to hear people thinking about ministry in different spots, uh, to be involved in uh, uh, pioneering, sort of planting and thinking through how we reach uh, the people in our nation with the gospel. So uh, thank you for your encouragement in that. Keep pressing on. Uh, we're going to look at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 3 this morning. Uh, and my goal is that we might continue to be encouraged, particularly as we reflect on the Apostle Paul and how he thought about ministry, uh, how he reflected on where he put his heart and his hope and his confidence. So as we do that, let me, let me pray. Uh, Father, we thank you so much that you are a gracious God. Uh, you're a God who has had mercy on so many uh, people, mercy on the people in this room, uh, Father, mercy on... Um, billions throughout this world and yet father we know that your desire is for the gospel uh, to be preached and proclaimed uh, throughout all the nations uh, so that people might hear it and encounter you Uh, father we thank you for every single couple in this room uh, the desire to be involved in uh, gospel work uh, to proclaim your name to glorify you Father, we do ask that you'll continue to shape our minds and our hearts uh, so that they might be focused on you, uh, so that we might be secure and confident in the right things, uh, motivated uh, by the things that are close to your heart. Uh, Father, we ask that that will happen, actually, as we look at your word now, that you'll speak clearly to us and that you'll continue to sift us as shepherds. Our Father, we commend ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a couple of months ago, I was uh, at home, we are about to have tea as a family, and the phone rang. Of course, you always know who's calling at that time of night. I answered the phone, uh, Paul Harrington speaking, and there was this pause. And then a click. Is that Mr Harrington? Yeah, you know the calls. The telemarketers on the phone. I was about to do my usual spiel. Sue's trained me. I normally just hang up, but Sue's trained me to be more polite. There are people too on the end of the phone. I haven't got time to talk right now. I hope you have good luck with your next call. Click was meant to be the response. But this guy was very good. He said, I'm not trying to sell you anything. Uh, I'm just doing, doing a survey. And if you participate in this survey, then you'll receive a prize. Now, I'm Australian. Uh, I always live in the hope that I'll get something for nothing. And uh, so I participated. I did the survey, uh, got to the end of the survey, and the guy said, what I'll do now is I'll put you on to Monique, and she will tell you how you can collect your prize. I thought, collect my prize? It must be very big. Uh, and then I got on to Monique, and she said, I'm just wanting, wanting to make a time when you can come and collect your prize. I said, why don't you just send it out? That'd be great. And uh, she said, no, no, you've got to come and collect it. And I said, why is that? She said, well, you need to come and listen to a presentation in order to be able to collect your prize. I said, what's the presentation on? And she said, well, uh, it's on why you should own a, own a timeshare apartment up on the Gold Coast. And... Uh, she was a seller of happiness. That's what she was. She was saying, if only you buy these four weeks on the Gold Coast every year, you'll be a, a very happy man. 
Now, she couldn't see me and my skin colouring, right? so she didn't know that this was a futile thing to be talking to me about. Uh, I just, uh, as soon as I see the sun, it just burns me, you know, in the middle of winter even. But, uh, but this woman, she was a seller of happiness. In 2006, there was a survey done. Uh, it was conducted by the Australian Institute on what makes people happy. Uh, they asked people to prioritise uh, the issues in life that were most important to them and gave them the most happiness. You can imagine what the sort of issues were, uh, you know, money, uh, work, health, relationships. And what was interesting about that survey was that well over 60% of Australians that were surveyed said that the key to their happiness was their relationships. Over 60% of Australians said that. You know, health, money, work, they're all down in single-digit figures. Happiness. Can I ask you, is it reasonable for us to want to be happy in ministry? Is that a reasonable goal for us, given the sort of thing we're doing? Can you be happy in ministry? Uh, as you think about the coming year or the next couple of years, what would make you happy in your ministry? What I want to do is turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians and look at that with you together. Uh, here uh, in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3, Paul is talking about both the joy and the heartache of Christian ministry. And it's, it's in, interestingly enough, it's all tied up with people. Uh, you go to chapter 1, verse 2 of the letter, and Paul starts off, he says, we always thank God for all of you. But then you get to chapter 3, verse 5, and he speaks about his fear for them. And that is his joy as he thinks about them and his fear as he reflects on where they're up to and where they're going. Let's look more closely at it. I've asked Dan if he'll come and read from chapter 2, verse 17. Uh, but what I want you to do as we listen to this is to think about where Paul's joy or happiness is as he reflects on Christian ministry, okay? You should have that question in your mind as Dan comes and uh, reads the Bible for us. Thanks, mate. So 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 17. But as for us, brothers, after we were forced to leave you for a short time, in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made every effort to return and see you face to face, so we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the Gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith so that no one will be shaken by these persecutions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. In fact, when we were with you, we, were, we told you previously that we were going to suffer persecution, and as you know, it happened. For this reason, when I could no longer stand it, I also sent him to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labour might be for nothing." But now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love and reported that you always have good memories of us 
wanting to see us as we also want to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you through your faith. For, we, for now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before our God because of you? as we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. May the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we also do for you. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen. Thanks, Dan. We know the background here. Uh, Paul had probably only been with these guys maybe three or four weeks. It could be longer, but probably around that sort of time there was uh, persecution and opposition, and it meant he left for uh, Berea. That was his situation. And then there was the question about did he really care for them? I mean, if he bailed on them so quickly... Uh, what was his attitude towards them? Uh, where, where did he stand with them? Verse 17 of chapter 2, uh, Paul says, But brothers, when we were torn away from you uh, for a short time, in, in person though not in thought, out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you. Uh, this idea, the idea of being torn away, is the, the, it's a strong emotional word, the idea of bereavement really. It's a sort of uh, uh, impact. You know, when we're looking at the earthquake and the tsunami in Japan and you saw the vision of the devastation, uh, but then the devastation uh, for the people. You know, do you remember the faces and the way they were just uh, uh, gripped with grief and heartache? It was the same with the, um, the floods up in Queensland earlier this year and we're looking at uh, people who were distressed uh, with the devastation to their houses. In fact, there are people here who are in that situation. Uh, but also those families where they lost people, where people died, and just the grief and the agony. It's that sort of word. That's the way Paul describes his concern uh, for these people and his longing to see them. It's interesting in verse 18, isn't it, um, where Paul speaks about Satan preventing him from getting back. And we're not told here how that worked, but it's interesting he had no power over Satan at this point, isn't it? No power actually reversed that. In verse 6 of chapter 3, Paul talks about his uh, longing to see them and their longing to see him and the way that that delights him. Notice here there's no uh, professional distance in this relationship. Even though it was only a, a three or four week relationship, uh, there's great affection. Now take it in ministry, uh, whatever your personality or disposition, uh, there is affection and love that's meant to be expressed for the people you're in partnership with in the gospel. That should be a reality. And it is different. When I was a lawyer, uh, you know, I used to draw wills and do conveyancing and all sorts of stuff for people. never occurred to me after a house settled to say to people, why don't you come on back to our place for a meal so we can celebrate? You know, I mean, it wasn't like that. You know, we sort of, we did the conveyance 
Uh, I got paid. I was friendly and polite, but it, it was formal. It was a job. Uh, ministry's not like that, is it? It can't be. Reg Piper, who was the guy who was a senior pastor at Trinity before I was, and he finished in 1993 in that congregation. Last year, he and Dorothy were back uh, pretty well for a holiday in Adelaide. And I heard later on that he'd gone to visit one of the people in our congregation that he knew when he was, when he was there. So this is 17 years later. There's a guy that had been one of his leaders and uh, his wife and, and uh, this man and his wife, they just celebrated 60 years of being married. But his wife has Alzheimer's and he'd had to uh, place her in a nursing home after trying to care for her for years. And uh, Reg went to visit him and just to read the Bible and pray with him. And the guy was just so encouraged by that ministry. Now I thought, isn't that interesting? 17 years later, uh, not even in his congregation now, but great love uh, for the people that he ministered to. That's right, isn't it? That's, that's what we're meant to be like in ministry. What Paul does is he goes on then and speaks about his, his anxiety and joy in ministry. What's the source of anxiety and joy from his perspective? It seems to me that the, the anxiety and the joy comes when you do love people, doesn't it? I remember throughout my teenage years, my mother looked so haggard all the time, right? Just wrecked, you know. As I think back, I can understand why. You know, I'd come home one, two, three o'clock in the morning, slip in through the front door as quietly as I possibly could, and every time my mother would say, Is that you, Paul? <laughs> I don't know who else she was expecting. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but, I mean, you know, she was just wrecked because of her, her concern uh, for me as one of her, her teenage kids. You know it's like that with your kids, don't you? You know how you go up and down with their ups and downs. You feel the agonies that they go through, their joys, their struggles. You know, that, that's just part of being, being a parent, really, isn't it? That's life. And it's the same with people who are your colleagues in the gospel. Sue and I have got this spot on our front veranda, and that's the spot where we can go and talk, have coffee, debrief, and the kids know this is not really a place for them. They've always known it. They still know it. Uh, they always ask if they can come out and join us because they know this is a spot where no one can hear us and we can talk. And we generally over the years try to sit down there when the weather permits, you know, and just have coffee and debrief on life. And normally what we do is we talk about the issues that concern us. And we may talk about family. Often we'll talk about uh, the staff families that, that are on our team. Often I'll be sharing with Sue the concerns I have uh, for different members of our staff team, the worries I have about them, um, how we can help or encourage them. That seems to me to be the way it goes uh, when you're in Christian ministry. Often we'll talk about congregation members, uh, people we love and care for that we're concerned about. It's right to have that sort of concern. But I want you to notice here that Paul's anxiety and joy has a much greater focus right, than just that general love and concern for people. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ 
to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. He's anxious for them, so he sends Timothy. But what's he anxious about? What's he anxious about? And some of the signals are there back in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2. He says, You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. See, there's that, that opposition for the gospel that Paul has certainly felt and known. And he knows that these guys in Thessalonica, they've experienced the same thing. Uh, it's normal. It's normal to worry for people who are going through tough times and facing suffering. I remember when uh, Maggie Cruz, who was out with uh, a missionary society when she was working in the Congo, uh, I caught up with her when she was back on furlough. Civil war had broken out in the Congo and it had been a very difficult time. She explained that uh, she was in this, this village there uh, when the rebels came into town. She knew uh, what the rebels did with women generally, but particularly white women. She knew that if uh, she was caught, uh, she'd be raped, uh, she'd probably be butchered, and uh, that would be slow. So what she did at that time was she went out and got into her long drop loo and put herself down in the loo and just hid there uh, for a prolonged period of time. Uh, it's natural to worry about people who are in that sort of situation, isn't it? Natural to be concerned and to be anxious. But that isn't the reason for Paul's anxiety, not primarily. Look at verse 3 of chapter 3. Here's his concern that no one would be unsettled by these trials, that no one would be unsettled by these trials. This is the core concern that he has, that people will be diverted from the gospel, diverted from their faith in the Lord Jesus. That's what he was anxious about. It's not that he's surprised. He talks um, in verse 5 uh, about the... Um, uh, sorry, verse 3 of chapter 3, about the fact that they were destined uh, for those sufferings and trials. But nonetheless, he's concerned that his labour, his effort, might have been in vain in verse 5, and that it might have been useless, it might have come to nothing. Can I say, in ministry, here is the primary concern. Here is the core uh, for anxiety as you think about ministry, that people will not stand firm in the gospel, that they will not press on in the faith. As a guy who was an MTS worker about a decade ago, very gifted young man, good evangelist, got to the end of his traineeship and decided he wouldn't go on with full-time ministry, got married, he and his wife went to another church. Uh, ten years later, uh, his Facebook status indicates he's now an atheist. This is a guy I shared an office with, uh, life with, and we talked, and I saw his ministry. Trying to be anxious about that, isn't it? Concerned. And our joy? Well, look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Paul says, For now we really live. 
since you are standing firm in the Lord. See, here is the focus of his joy. Now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. When I became a Christian in 1978, I began teaching uh, Sunday school in 19... must have been about 1980. So most of the kids in these Christian families knew a stack more than I did, actually. It was pretty embarrassing. You know, I'd always have sort of pop quiz, quiz questions so I could learn things. Uh, you know, it was like that with the kids. And uh, the Sunday school superintendent at the time was a lady called Kay Crawley. She was in her 50s. And she was a godly older woman. When I got back on the staff team... She and her husband, David, they just pressed on in the faith. You know, just solid, keen Christian people. A couple of years ago, in their early 80s, uh, David and Kay decided they would go to the north of Pakistan uh, to do ESL teaching for Af- Afghani refugees coming across the border. And uh, Kay was being interviewed in church. So here she is, early 80s, and David's maybe a year or two older than her. So not, not in the best of health. And she said, you know, the thing that people have said to me most often is, aren't you worried that you might die in Pakistan? And she said, but I say to them, there's a fair chance I might die here too. You know? uh, <laughs> it's always possible, you know. And, uh, you see, well, they're just a couple who exude love for the Lord Jesus and have done it for decade after decade after decade after decade. And let me say it. They bring me great joy in the Lord. Uh, Andrew Cheer is a guy who uh, came through the university ministry when I was a staff worker. He said he attributed his, his, uh, uh, the lowering of his grade average to me uh, because I talked to him at one stage about uh, the fact that when you're at university, the job is not to be doing as well as you can in your studies, but as faithfully as you can towards Jesus while you're on campus. And he took that on board and he said he went from an average distinction student to an average credit student overnight as he thought about the nature of ministry. Andrew went on, he became a doctor, he did an MTS thing with us. He's now gone to, um, he came over here to more college to study. Every year I'd ring him up actually and I'd say, Andrew, you know that God is calling you to come back to Adelaide. Uh, I was even prepared to vary my theology of guidance to get him back. <laughs> and uh, he... Uh, You'd say, yeah, Paul, we're we're thinking maybe we should go to the Diocese of West Malaysia. And, of course, I then would sympathetically say, God wants you to come to Adelaide, Andrew. (laughs) He's in the Diocese of West Malaysia working for the the cathedral in KL. And uh, they have planted over there uh, three churches in the last few years. And it is a great joy uh, to see them pressing on in the Christian faith, honouring Jesus, standing firm. There's a guy in our congregation called Wayman Chapman, a list. It wasn't our congregation. I, I preached at his funeral a couple of months ago. Uh, Wayman was 59, found out he had a brain tumour. He'd just gone with his wife to our latest church plant at the beginning of last year, core members. Uh, discovered he had a brain tumour, inoperable, uh, with you know, something less than 12 months to go. His pastor was a guy on our team called Clayton Fop, guy in his young, young 30s, right? About as young as uh, some of Wayman's kids. So Clayton came around and uh, said to Wayman, you'll probably be the first man that I pastor into the grave. And uh, Wayman said to him, he said, that's great. He said, you can try out all your material on me. <laughs> and he, 
actually maintained that perspective. Wasn't it a gracious thing to say to a young pastor, wasn't it? Lovely. And he just maintained that stability and confidence in the promises of Jesus right up until he died. Friends, that's where Christian joy is. Now we really live since you are standing firm in the gospel. Now, let me ask you a rhetorical question. Uh, What causes you the most anxiety? What are the things that um, eat away at you and uh, erode your pressing on? You know, dissipate your energies and discourage you in different ways. What are you most anxious about? Maybe your kids and their future? I mean, you have to be concerned about your kids. <coughs> your health? I think the church planters, uh, often it's the fact that they have put their hopes in the gospel and also in an idea, you know, in something that doesn't exist. And that sense of, whoa, that's pretty stressful. There can be the financial stress. You know, I put my hope in an idea. Ideas don't generally pay very well. You know, uh, will we survive uh, financially as we move forward? There can be all sorts of different uh, stresses and anxieties that we can have as we press on. You need to actually uh, be sharply disciplined, really, when you're in Christian ministry. Uh, Not that you don't have concerns about many things, but you've got to be disciplined in mind and in heart to be concerned about the right things and to prioritise those concerns. Verse 8, we live, we live if people are standing firm in the Lord. That's when we're most alive. Paul goes on, verses 10 and 11, uh, sorry, in verses 11 to 13 of chapter 3, and talks about praying, really, in Christian ministry. Uh, the sort of issues that were going on for him as he thought about this church caused him to pray. I mean, he gave thanks. He gives thanks frequently throughout this letter. Uh, he said in uh, verse 2 of chapter 1, he thanks God, particularly for them. Uh, chapter 2, verse 13, he gives thanks again to God. Chapter 3, verse 9, he says, How can we thank God enough for you? It's right to thank God for what he's doing in people's lives. Uh, he prays. Uh, verse 10 of chapter 3, that he might see them. Or verse 11, that God might clear the way so he can come to them. He continues to pray. What does he pray for? Verse 10, that he might supply what's lacking in their faith. Uh, the picture here is of uh, a mending of the net. You can understand it, can't you? Three or four weeks is not long to teach the whole counsel of God. And so he's wanting to return to fill in the gaps, you know, to, to make, make sure there's a tighter, a tighter net to catch them in the right sense. He prays that their love might increase and overflow, uh, verses 11 through 13. That they might be blameless and holy when Jesus comes. Now I want you to notice, he doesn't pray any doctor prayers, no doctor prayers here. You know what I mean? Uh, last November, 
I was feeling tired. I'd been you know, tired for about three or four weeks. I went to the doctor. He took a blood sample. Okay, that was obviously the key to my recovery. I started feeling better from that moment on. And so I didn't bother going back to the doctor. Right? Doctors are like that. You only ever go back when you need them. Uh, you know, June this year, Sue and I had to go back to get some shots before we went overseas. And I thought at that time it was probably sensible to ask how the blood tests had gone. Right, because I hadn't been back. So seven months later, he looked them up on his computer and he said, oh, they're all fine. You know, that's my approach to going to doctors. Right? I generally don't bother unless I'm sick or dying. You know, that's, that's basically the way it works. Uh, none of those sort of prayers here. Uh, there's not the, the God of the last resort sort of prayer. He prays with God's priorities in mind, doesn't he? Uh, he's praying for their, their increase in love. Um, that they'll be blameless and holy when Jesus returns. It's the right sort of focus, isn't there, for prayers? Remember listening to Don Carson talk about what it was like for him and his family when his wife got breast cancer. He said it was lovely the way the whole Christian family would gather around them. And a number of prayer meetings were held uh, where they got together and prayed for, for his wife. He said, well, what was very interesting was that the prayers were almost exclusively for her healing, physical healing. He said, no one prayed that she might press on faithfully, trusting in Jesus, no matter what happened. See, you pray with the priorities of God. He also prays for things that they already have. Um, verse 12, he prays that, chapter 3, that their love might Increase. They're already loving each other. So he prays they might, they might do it more. So not for something new, but growth in an area. Or verse 12 of chapter 4. Now you do love each other, but do it more and more. It's, it's right to have that sort of focus in your prayers and in your thinking and in your ministry. It's actually hard to do, isn't it? Don't you find? Don't you find you're... Um, distracted by the priorities of this world, the way they impose themselves upon you. I think we mentioned yesterday our eldest has got chronic fatigue. His name's Ben. He's 24 now, still at university. Uh, he's had chronic fatigue since year 11 of high school. So that's about uh, seven years or so, maybe a bit longer than that now. And uh, we, you might have guessed, we're his parents. Uh, that is, we, are, we would love him to actually be restored to full health. And we persistently prayed for that over a number of years. I think it's right to be praying that way. He was interviewed at a conference a couple of years ago. I didn't know it was going to happen. It was one I was present at. And uh, they asked him how he was going with his chronic fatigue. And he said, you know, in fact, the question that was asked was, if you had your way, would you prefer not to have had this illness? I would have thought no-brainer here, <laughs> pretty obvious. He said, no, actually, I'm pleased that I got this illness in a way. For what it's made me do is rely upon God more and I have grown as a Christian through it. I thought, that's so right. See, I, I would love him to be healed right, and restored to full health. He... He may be, or he may not be. I mean, I don't know. But actually, the most important thing is happening already. See, God is using it to grow him more like his son. And in that, 
You see, I rejoice. Paul's prayers, they go to the heart of his concerns, uh, the depth of what he's wanting uh, for the people of God. Notice also, at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul starts to talk about the joy, what pleases God, effectively, is what he's talking about. He says, finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you're now living. And we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. So what delights the apostle is that these Thessalonians are living to please God himself. And in chapter 4, he then goes on and talks about the characteristic of the holy life, uh, the life of obedience and faith to Jesus in practical sort of areas. And can I say, as gospel workers, as pastors, uh, delight uh, when your people are faithfully following Jesus and obeying him. Often we take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. Rejoice when people are living faithfully in order to honour God. That should bring you great joy too, because it pleases God. So it ought to please you. Friends, joy in ministry, happiness in ministry. Australians instinctively, pagan Australia knows uh, that happiness is to be found in relationships. They don't live that way, but they believe it's true. That is the thing about this survey. It was incorporated into a book called Affluenza. And that book uh, talks about the fact that Australians say relationships are are more important. But what they do is they overwork to over-earn to buy things that they hope will help them in their relationships. They put the relationships on the the end or the bottom of the pile. Happiness in ministry. How do you have joy now? What robs you of your joy? What delights you? Chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says, Now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. Now we live. Sue and I caught up with um, some friends of ours the other night, a couple in ministry. Uh, They've got three kids. And their kids are delightful, engaging, bright, been very successful, capable, uh, you know, it was great. It was a fun night. Uh, but this couple of ministry, they're going through agony uh, because two of these kids are not walking with the Lord. And they are distressed about that. Can I say they are rightly distressed? Because those kids aren't standing firm in the Lord. That ought to cause them anxiety. Joy now, where does it come from? It comes from people walking and standing firm in the Lord. But also this letter, I want to finish on this, it it gives us a wider perspective, doesn't it? It talks about the uh, the eternal joy. It gives us that wide-angle lens on what life is about. Chapter 2, verse 19. What's our hope, our joy or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. Is it not you? Or verse 13 of chapter 3. May he strengthen your hearts so that you'll be blameless and holy 
in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Uh, the survey in 2006 uh, for Australians, Happiness Survey, it's all about joy now. And in fact, most Australians can't think beyond the now. It's all about joy now. It's the, uh, the boxed world, what you see, taste, touch, feel. Uh, but we have the privilege of getting this window into eternity. And that, that it imposes itself. And it's meant to give us enormous joy as we think about God's plans, his forever plans. On that day, that day when our Lord Jesus comes, when he returns, and what will bring joy and happiness then? I don't think it's going to be that timeshare apartment on the Gold Coast that I didn't buy. I suspect not. I don't think it'll be based around whether my kids can play a musical instrument or whether they have a degree, or whether they've played first grade for some football club somewhere. Or I don't think it's going to count for a pinch of salt on that day. I don't think it'll count for anything as to whether or not you have a name for being Australia's equivalent of Mark Driscoll or not. Not a pinch of salt. Nothing. On that day, what will count? What's our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you, says the Apostle, of those who have believed and turned away from idols to serve the living God? Friends, that is where our joy and our delight in ministry is to come from. So make it your focus, won't you, to delight in that. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are extraordinarily privileged, uh, like the Apostle, to be people who are involved in sharing our lives and the gospel with those around us. Father, we thank you that we have this extraordinary privilege of seeing people turn away from idols to serve the living and true God and to put their trust in your promises. Father, we know there are many things that press in upon us, that distract us, that unsettle us, that are nervous, that discourage us. Father, we pray that you'll help us to have the discipline, uh, the godly discipline of mind and heart uh, to be concerned about whether people are standing firm in you or not. Father, help us not to move on quickly from that. Uh, We know we can move on to plans and dreams and schemes and ideas and hopes, all good things. But Father, we do pray that you'll help us to delight in what you are already doing in the lives of people and to celebrate when those you have called Uh, come into faith and relationship with you. Father, help us to make uh, sure that those realities are in the crosshairs of our concern. Uh, Father, help us uh, to be those who are full of appropriate joy and anxiety as we consider these weighty matters. Uh, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.